Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by senior editors Sue Sutter and Kathy Kelly and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is April 1st, 2022, and unfortunately, I don't have a good April Fool's joke for our listeners today. But we do have plenty of FDA-related news, beginning with the advisory committee meeting for a proposed ALS drug. In one of the more eagerly anticipated advisory committee meetings in a while that wasn't associated with COVID, the FDA's outside experts considered Amelix's AMX0035. By the way, I just love that they don't have that name that I can't pronounce yet <laughs> for the drug. So it doesn't seem like the FDA got a def- sue. It doesn't seem like the FDA got a definitive recommendation from the committee on this one, though. No. So the committee um, voted six to four that the data from a phase two trial with 137 um, participants in it, as well as the open label extension from that study, um, could not serve as the sole um, evidence of effectiveness, that it did not establish that the drug was effective in treating patients with ALS. Um, A lot of the reason for the negative votes was um, they agreed with FDA's fairly extensive criticisms of the study design and conduct. Um, A lot of this had to do with um, statistical issues, how the primary endpoint was assessed, uh, modest effect size, um, the trial's overall small size. I mean, it was only a phase two trial. Problems with the randomization scheme, uh, potential for functional and blinding, and a lack of support from secondary endpoints. Um, those on the uh, those among the four who thought that effectiveness had been established. Um, Basically, they felt like enough had been done at this point and that it should be given as an option to ALS patients. And the the committee meeting featured extensive testimony from the patient community. I think a total of 25 people testified, um, by my count, roughly 23 of whom were patients or their caregivers or um, clinicians who strongly supported the drug's approval. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and, and you know, I noted the in your story and a bunch of the stories that we wrote about this, that the, the, the you know, once again, that the patient contingent, they were providing these, you know, emotion, this really emotional testimony and, and um, you know, compare. And in some cases, they even compared it to um, the uh, the Alzheimer's drug Aduhelm that was we all know and we've talked about a lot on this podcast is, you know, uh, a controversial decision um, that also had help for the patients. Um, do you think the patients can push this one over the top? I think the ALS patient community is very powerful and has learned um, that it can leverage its might. I'm not sure that they would have gotten this far with this drug um, had it not been for the uh, patient community and the strength of their voices. So, um, you know, even though it was a slightly negative vote, it's not beyond the realm of possibilities that FDA would go ahead and approve this, in my opinion. Um, You know, especially if it goes 
up the chain of command and there's, you know, there's a lot of emphasis in the FDA these days about regulatory flexibility and unmet needs and rare diseases and that sort of thing. I mean, we've seen that with aducanumab, although uh, Alzheimer's certainly not a rare disease, as well as the Teplerson decision years ago for um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So I really think it's an open question as to what they will do um, with this application. Notably, the neurology division and the Office of Neuroscience, who were such huge boosters of the aducanumab application, um, did not show that same kind of support this time around. They were fairly critical of the application, and it was quite a contrast to their review of aducanumab. You know, I wondered about that, Sue, if all the controversy and pushback that the agency got as a result of the approval of uh, aducanumab, you know, is leading to more sort of caution um, for this application. Do you think that's going to, I mean, how much weight will that carry? I'm not sure that it will carry that much weight, given it is a rare disease Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, clearly there's, you know, highly morbid. Um, so I don't know. I mean, FDA says it doesn't let, you know, it always makes its decisions on a, you know, an individual application basis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, but then of course there's the other issue of if this does get approved, will it be covered? Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. But that's not FDA's problem now, is no, it? No, no. <laughs> well, and I mean, there, it hasn't like it, it isn't like there's it's been all criticism of the Agihelm decision. There's been a lot of people, I mean, you know, advocates, I mean, advocates weren't the only ones cheering the, the decision. I mean, you had people on Capitol Hill who admittedly aren't as knowledgeable of the issue in mm-hmm. some cases, you know, saying this is a good I'm glad they did it. This is what accelerated approval is for, mm-hmm. and, along with a lot of other people. So, you know, it. You know, you could argue that, you know, FDA's probably could could be thinking, hey, we're right in the middle. We got a lot of criticism. We got a lot of right. a lot of, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of uh, OK, good job type of comments, mm-hmm. too. So, yeah. I mean, the, and the agency says that they say if we're being criticized from all sides, then we usually think we're doing a fine job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think uh, um that uh, you know, sort of universal disclaim is a uh, um, a measure of uh, success. I mean, the fact that's for kind of that uh, people think that uh, FDA is too lenient or um, uh, that they're not moving fast enough is not an indication they're being sufficiently thoughtful. I mean, there's sort of kind of different different ways of uh, looking at it, but it is a uh, um, it, it is right. That's for kind of that, that uh, um, you know Congress has said that sort of this is a pathway that FDA should use should use and it's using it. And so uh, in that in that respect, they're uh, doing exactly what they uh, um, what they should um, in one uh, you know important way obviously the uh, um, the fact that the ALS is a uh, a rare disease as opposed to a, a very common disease which uh, um, uh, Alzheimer's is uh, that that it, it looks like they will depart from their uh, you know Adjahelm uh, approach and that they will not use accelerated approval uh, or at least that's what they suggested at the advisory committee right Sue well I think accelerate approval on the basis of a surrogate endpoint is out of the question because the biomarker that they assessed in the study um, didn't show anything. 
And Billy Dunn, the head of the Office of Neuroscience, said as much. Um, you know, he said, you know, we all would have liked to have seen some impact on this biomarker, but there was nothing there. So I, I think accelerated approval on the basis of a surrogate endpoint is out. Um, I would not close the door on accelerated approval on the basis of an intermediate clinical endpoint. The primary endpoint in the study was a functional rating scale um, that FDA recommends for these types of studies. It's a, it's a validated endpoint. Um, but FDA wanted to see that endpoint um, analyzed in conjunction with deaths in the study. And the sponsor only analyzed the functional endpoint as the primary endpoint. So um, the company has a phase three study underway already, which again is a huge difference to the Adihelm situation. So about 150 patients out of 600 have already been enrolled in the phase three study. The primary endpoint in that study is the same functional endpoint, but it's also going to be jointly analyzed with deaths. So that is um, FDA's preferred endpoint. So I could see them possibly moving with an accelerated approval on an intermediate clinical endpoint. And with accelerated approval, then they would have the leverage to require completion of this, you know, phase three study and, and, and potentially the ability to withdraw the drug if it doesn't pan out. I think FDA has concerns about what if we do approve it here and it doesn't pan out in the phase three study. Yeah, I mean, if you look at through kind of the other two, uh, um, you know, controversial uh, uh, approvals in this uh, vein, aducanumab and uh, uh, teprosin, uh, you know, this one actually sort of seems to have more data. You know, sort of the, uh, the confirmatory trial is uh, further along, and uh, and yet, uh, as uh, Kathy was saying, that uh, perhaps we're sort of given the uh, political firestorm that sort of it makes it almost less likely that uh, um, it uh, it might get uh, um, an FDA thumbs up, uh, just given the uh, um, all the issues surrounding it. Yeah, I mean, it's heads and tails different from Ateplersen and Aducanumab in terms of the status of the confirmatory trial. They're looking to complete this this trial um, in 2024, whereas, you know, Ateplersen and Aduhelm were, were years and years away from completion. They hadn't even been designed at the time of the approvals. So, you know, definitely heading in the right direction in this regard on the ALS drug. But yeah, it is a question of whether, you know, the ALS community is going to get caught in this concern over the inability to confirm clinical benefit. I mean, there's also the possibility that FDA could grant regular approval too. There was no discussion at the advisory committee meeting by FDA or the company or any of the committee members about accelerated approval. Of course, we've seen that before, and yes, <laughs> and oh, magically accelerated approval happened. Um, what one other thing I I noted, and you know, maybe I just I I wonder about this logic, just because, like you all, I've seen a lot of these before, a lot of these types of reviews before, but there were arguments that there's a lack of safety issues with this product. And that was kind of saying like, well, you should approve it because there's a lack of, you know, there's no safety issue that we need to worry about. And I guess some, you know, I mean, could they, I mean, you know, you just said that accelerated approval, you know, may not necessarily be on the table. But I mean, is that kind of a, 
I don't, I don't know if we count that as kind of a point in favor of maybe, you know, using accelerated approval or getting this, you know, making this available because, I mean, Agihome did, you know, had, I guess, some safety issues they were worried about, but it wasn't like a huge, you know, kind of a, in a, a big obvious one that they, you know, that they could easily just say, no, we can't do it because of this issue that comes up. But I'm just curious if you think that like the lack of safety concerns is a, you know, potentially counts as a, a point in favor. I definitely do. Um, I mean, FDA and the company had were in complete agreement on the safety issues. FDA didn't even really address the safety very much in its presentation. I mean, the, the situation with Agihelm is a little different. There's this um, brain or amyloid related imaging abnormalities that are associated with Agihelm and they can have some um, <clears throat> physiological impacts as well. And I think we've seen some of that in the post-market setting. So I think the safety concerns with Agihelm were definitely greater. But in both cases, you know, they're they're awful diseases, neurodegenerative mm -hmm. diseases. And, um, you know, there's people are desperate for anything that might help. You know, from the payer perspective, a lack of safety problems, it will be helpful, too, <laughs> because that definitely came up, you know, for the Medicare draft decision, you know, concern that the safety issues could outweigh the efficacy, you know, potential efficacy. Um, and I think other payers and providers thought that way too. So that could be a good thing if it is approved. The price will be key too. <laughs> and let's see. Yeah, and the, the fact that it's an ALS drug uh, means that the uh, even if it is quite pricey, the uh, the overall uh, uh, bill will be uh, That's right. much smaller than it would be with uh, an yeah. Alzheimer's drug. Yeah, it seems yeah. like the only uh, um, safety issue was for kind of there was some transient uh, gastrointestinal distress that may have uh, uh, caused some unblinding issues in the uh, the trial possibly uh, uh, sounded like. So yeah, when you think about a uh, um, you know a, a risk free uh, decision, at least from sort of kind of patient safety uh, standpoint, it's sort of it's a uh, um, you know that 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 takes that takes uh, one weight off after your shoulder on this uh, on this issue. Yeah, well, the the review goal for this product is June 29th, so we'll be certainly watching for developments leading up to the decision and and you know covering the decision once it comes out, and then Kathy's going to get to cover the, the 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 coverage decision when once that starts. Yeah, so if, if it's that. approved. If it's yeah. approved, yes. Yeah. So, by the way, since Edgehome keeps coming up. In, in the in the in these in this context, we're we're going to revisit the ongoing push over the CMS coverage decision of Agile. Yep. Uh, Kathy, you you looked at the you know the advocates and and uh, you know the, they're they're starting to meet with some HHS officials or trying to to kind of reverse the draft to the draft decision on this. Yeah, so I I did a story recently on you know ongoing lobbying by these advocacy groups in opposition to the draft. Medicare, Medicare national coverage determination for Alzheimer's drug, Aduhelm, and others in the class. You know, CMS has proposed that because the data are insufficient to show clinical effectiveness, that Medicare will only cover those drugs when they're used in CMS-approved randomized clinical trials, which would significantly curtail access. Um, so the the group Us Against Alzheimer's did an analysis of how many clinical trial sites would be able to conduct one of these CMS-approved studies. 
and they came up with a map showing that just 64 sites located in 28 states would actually qualify, and that would leave a, you know, a large swath of the country without access to the drugs. Um, they also estimate that just a few thousand patients would be treated through those sites. And what they did in conducting the analysis is they looked for hospital outpatient clinics with radiology departments and neurologists on staff as meeting the CMS criteria that was sort of spelled out in the draft NCD. Um, so, so these findings um, are in line with, with what they've been saying in opposition to the draft, but the map does offer kind of a vivid illustration that, you know, it's the kind of thing that would resonate with members of Congress who might look at the map and say, you know, oh no, there's no sites at all in my state, you know, and that could sort of push them to become engaged in this, you know, in this fight. Um, this, this is part of sort of an intensifying campaign against the NCD um, and that group, Us Against Alzheimer's, the Alliance for Aging Research, the Alzheimer's Association, had hoped to meet with uh, HHS Secretary Becerra in late March, about a week ago, to present their case. But apparently, Becerra called the meeting off at the last minute on the advice of legal counsel, according to the groups. Um, and that suggests that Becerra does expect to weigh in on the final NCD, which is due to be released by April 11th. And he might want to avoid any Administrative Procedures Act related legal issues that could arise if he was meeting with stakeholders after the public comment period ended, which was in January. So, so to me, the implications of that development um, might be, you know, advocates fear that the final NCD is not going to change that much from the draft. Um, and, you know, maybe that is more likely now that there's sort of 11th hour attempt to change the course of the final decision by going to the secretary has been thwarted. Um, we only have about a week left to to go, so we'll find out for sure soon. Kathy, so, I found that map to be really interesting, and I wondered, is this the type of analysis that CMS would have conducted on its own before it issued the NCD? You know, it's it's hard to say because they they didn't present any, you know, sort of uh, results like that in the NCD. They didn't estimate, you know, how many people would have access under their decision. Um, so it's hard to it's hard to say. But it is it is kind of striking when you when you look at that map. Yeah, Kathy, did you um, remember from the NCD? Was there some discussion of the the populations that were in the uh, the trials that uh, FDA relied on? They didn't think they were sufficiently. Uh, Diverse or something like that. I I'm trying to pull that up. At the, yes, um, they did. A, you know, they they did say that what they would hope too with these you know upcoming trials is that there would be more diversity. Um, and you know, these advocacy groups have pushed back on that too by saying that the parameters are so narrow that CMS has set out, or at least did in the draft, that you know it's not going to lend, it's not going to make it easy for these these trials to you know pull in more diverse groups. Um, a lot of them are around urban areas and that'll leave, you know, a lot of rural areas unserved and that sort of thing. So uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm misunderstanding the the argument in total, but I mean the the draft decision is only covering those in that could be in a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. And this argument is saying that there's only 
so many sites that can handle the clinical trial, which is mm -hmm. by definition going to limit access. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what, aren't they just confirming what CMS is basically saying? We're not ready to make this available to everybody yet? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could look at it that way. I'm sure CMS wouldn't. Um, you know, what, what they, they probably look at this as their job is to decide whether Medicare should cover this drug. And, you know, they use certain criteria to, and that, that's their reasonable and necessary standard. And so, you know, what they've determined is that the data are not adequate to support the legal, you know, threshold for coverage. So <laughs> I don't, I wouldn't say that they would look in, they would go into this thinking, okay, what can we do to restrict access to, you know, to these drugs? But um, in fact, they probably would say, they would deny that that would be, you know, their intention going into it, that they are very sympathetic to patients and all that. But, um, you know, they their sort of mandate is is kind of a narrow consideration of whether the data, you know, for these drugs qualify for Medicare coverage. And so and and under this coverage with evidence development uh, policy, you know, they they do have a mechanism to require additional data as a condition of coverage. And so that they've decided to go that, that route with, with this, um, with these drugs. It is the first time they've done it for drugs too, by the way. <laughs> the, the other thing that, you know, you mentioned that um, Secretary Becerra may want to weigh in on this decision. What, mm -hmm. what, what potentially could he do other than just say, I agree? Yeah, I mean, I would guess that's what, you know, that's what he's going to do. But maybe because this, this is such a, you know, highly anticipated, controversial decision that he, he you know, would think that he would add his, you know, whatever gravitas or weight to to the decision, you know, sort of backing up CMS. That That's my guess. But he doesn't have like, I mean, the reason I, I bring this up is because FDA famously made the decision on um, plan B one step mm -hmm. and the secretary, HHS secretary at the time, Kath, I believe it was Kathleen Sebelius mm -hmm. came out and said, no, we're not doing that mm -hmm. and, and overturned it. And it was, mm -hmm. I think one of the first times that the only, not the only time that that's ever happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, does, does he have the, uh, does secretary Becerra have the ability to overturn a CMS decision? You know, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I would assume that he did, but I'm not sure. I mean, I think that's that's something worth looking into <laughs> at this point. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, it just depends on how the statute's written. It's usually, you know, the uh, you know the, the Congress gives yeah. the authority to the secretary, and then right. the secretary it's delegated. It, so yeah, yeah. So, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's another another interesting twist in all this. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. so yeah. we'll be we'll be watching. We've only got what. Two weeks to go now, less than two yeah, weeks. Less. So, yeah, the eleventh. Mm -hmm. Assuming they don't delay it. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you have a uh, an Agile a day uh, uh, countdown calendar on your, your desk, uh, Kathy. It's, uh, no, I'm not quite that that uh, engrossed. But um, yeah, I bet. I wonder if there's betting odds on because there's betting odds in just about everything now. I wonder if I yeah. wonder if you could. I wonder if there's like odds on whether or not they they make the decision on that day, yeah, and what it is. This is a very good question, Derek. There's, I mean, obviously, sort of, there's there are all those sort of kind of those markets on, uh, you know, whether various people will be named, uh, you know, secretary or uh, mm -hmm. um, 
or what have you. I wonder there's there's got to be some uh, um, obviously the stock market is the method of sort of betting on whether a uh, a drug will be approved, but uh, um, we could sort of we could look at sort of what uh, what's happening with the uh, um, Biogen stock would perhaps be the uh, um, mm-hmm. the best indicator of uh, of that. So yeah, yes. Yeah. Interesting, nonetheless. We always seem to find more things to write about related to this as we go forward here. So, (laughs) Finally today, we're going to look at the FDA's fiscal year 2023 budget request. President Biden asked for a massive increase, upping the agency's funding more than 36% to $8.4 billion. Much of that total came from a new mandatory funding for pandemic preparedness, such as improved regulatory capacity, Uh, IT and laboratory infrastructure improvements and other things. The agency also would focus on evaluation of vaccines and therapeutics and strengthen foreign inspections. Now, while many advocates are excited that President Biden thought this much of the agency, we should point out that this total is almost surely not going to happen. Presidential budget requests are almost never enacted as written, and such a large increase for the FDA probably seems unlikely. Um, but But I'm curious if you all think this idea of preparing for the next pandemic, which has come up several times now over the last few years and not and not just in the COVID context um whether that could catch on in some capacity um you know during the appropriations process i mean could we see could we finally see some dedicated funding that's more than just like a a, like a kind of a one-time cash infusion or like a just a small kind of drop in the bucket uh, you know for for you know for something like that I feel like all, everyone on on the Hill is always talking about we need to be pre- prepared for the next pandemic, but then when push comes to shove, they just don't appropriate the money that's really needed to do the job correctly. Yeah, I think Sue's uh, uh, absolutely right. This sort of, there is both the kind of uh, the idea that, you know, what we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. That's sort of kind of as soon as the, <laughs> uh, the, the crisis passes, uh, everything is forgotten. And then especially now, even through kind of what well, we're still sort of in the midst of uh, of uh, you know, uh, many many people dying every day of uh, of COVID, there is a, a feeling of uh, um, you know we just have to move on at least sort of from the uh, um, uh, many of the Republican camp and uh, you know the uh, um, the ideas we're going to uh, um, going to, to war to get this particular uh, FDA funding uh, you know seems uh, um, seems unlikely to uh, um, to me obviously sort of kind of it uh, um, you know it's not uh, going to be sort of kind of a uh, a high political salience issue. There's no one going to be, uh, you know, saying that uh, um, you know uh, someone voting for this uh, funding is say you know pro pro mask or pro uh, vaccine mandate. But it's just there's just not the uh, the wide spread constituency for something like this. That's sort of perhaps another uh, um, more general sort of, kind of health research issue would uh, um, would generate sometimes like they do on the uh, the Hill in terms of bipartisan support. Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, the budget request also includes um, a, several legislative proposals, including reforms for accelerated approval, which we've managed to talk about, I think, almost this entire podcast. Um, <laughs> the agency wants to use dispute resolution procedures to deal with withdrawals, which ideally could shorten the notoriously long process of, of, of pulling an accelerated approval once the confirmatory trials, uh, you know, if they fail. Uh, in addition, the agency wants to require what sounds like a confirmatory trial feasibility study to verify that the studies can confirm clinical benefit and be completed in a timely manner. So I'm curious what you all think of these ideas. Could you see 
dispute resolution being used to withdraw accelerated approvals, which for those of you who aren't as you know in the weeds on this as we are, that's where you can appeal a decision up to the next highest management level. So going from the division level to the office level to the center level to and uh, uh, you know at the end you get you can go all the way up to uh, to the commissioner and himself um, in this case. But I'm curious if you think that you know we could see accelerated approvals you know being adjudicated that way. Well, I think the feasibility study issue is interesting, and I think that's doable. I mean, that may even be doable now. I'm not sure. Um, this idea of dispute resolution, it sounds nice in theory. I would say that there's not as much transparency attached to that for people who are not involved in the process um, because, you know, FDA doesn't usually make available its decisions in dispute resolution proceedings unless it's taken to an ADCOM and it's included as part of an ADCOM briefing document or unless it's ultimately, well, would have already been approved or included in some sort of review package. Um, so there's less transparency there, and I just don't know that um, sponsors would favor that route. I think sponsors would favor something that's um, something that might involve more public input. Yeah, I think uh, the reform that uh, advisor uh, accelerated approval uh, skeptics uh, want is some sort of uh, speed and assurance of uh, um, withdrawal if FDA makes a determination and that, uh, um, you know, it's perhaps uh, um, created through uh, dispute resolution, but it seems like they're even there, there's kind of, uh, at least under this proposal, there's an advisory committee uh, um, um, appeal option and that, you know, would not sort of kind of uh, get the sort of kind of uh, uh, swift removal that uh, um, that they're looking for there. So it's, uh, um, um, you know, I, I think more than, um, you know whether it's uh, inside or outside uh, FDA in terms of kind of how uh, the uh, stuff is vetted. What uh, would make a difference is a a clock that's sort of kind of say once FDA makes a determination, there's there's you know has to be done in 12 months or six months or something like that, regardless of sort of, kind of whether it's a uh, you know through uh, um, internal mechanisms or an outside advisory committee. I think that would be uh, um, a big uh, um, a big change in terms of how this is done. And then the, the feasibility study. I have to admit that I'm not sure how this is any different than sort of kind of what FDA should be doing when they, you know, work with a sponsor on developing the, um, you know, the confirmatory trial in the first place. Like you think they would sort of account for that when they, uh, um, you know, when they advise and, uh, um, you know, sort of to give a thumbs up on uh, those kind of trials in the first place. So I'm not, I'm not sure if we're going to have much of an impact that would uh, make aside from sort of making it seem like they're, um, they're really sort of kind of serious about making sure it gets done. Well, yeah, if I can share a little anecdote when, because uh, I've covered the McKenna proceeding very closely. When they originally approved McKenna, they did not do so right away because they were very concerned about the feasibility of conducting that confirmatory trial. And they asked the sponsor for all sorts of details about enrollment and expectations <clears throat> and what their plans were for trying to conduct this confirmatory trial if this drug got approved, accelerated approval. And so FDA ended up, you know, being satisfied with the information that they were given. They 
They granted accelerated approval, and then that confirmatory trial took nine years, <laughs> in part because the drug was available in the U.S. under accelerated approval, and they couldn't enroll in the U.S., and they had to go to Eastern Europe, and the results, um, the, the study failed, and the company is saying it failed because we had to enroll a different population than what was in the U.S. Well, and then you've also, and this was one of the reasons the, the PDUFA 7 agreement he included a post-marketing study component was because there were complaints that a lot of the you know the post-marketing requirements were ill-conceived because they were rushed because they usually waited until around the end of the review cycle to kind of start making those decisions so you know they so it's making them move it earlier in the process to maybe to think about it a little more so i mean i don't know if in every case that they were worried about, you know, they just didn't have time to, you know, before the review goal to make a lot of these decisions, or maybe, maybe they just, you know, they couldn't go, you know, they couldn't get all the detail they wanted because it was so late in the process and they had to make a decision. But, you know, I wonder if timeline had something to do with it too. Matt, I'm also curious about your idea of a clock um, on, on a withdrawal. What, what would be, what would happen if FDA missed the, the deadline, would you say it stays on the market or would you say it's automatically withdrawn? Uh, well, certainly sort of, uh, you know, uh, ref, um, skeptics of the accelerated approval process as it's being implemented by FDA would say that it should be, the, the default should be to uh, go to withdrawal once uh, um, the withdrawal process is initiated if uh, um, things can't be wrapped up in a, uh, um, a certain amount of time. So, uh, you know, it would sort of, uh, Disincentivize trying to drag things out, like uh, you know, perhaps we're seeing with the uh, um, the McKenna um, process, and you know, obviously the um, the sponsors would say that uh, you know what we want is just a, a complete vetting of all the uh, um, the relevant issues, and that's we're not trying to sort of drag our feet; we're just we're kind of trying to be thorough. Um, you know, if you look at the um, the Pallone, uh, um bill in the uh, in the House, and sort of you know what they're sort of moving towards is sort of kind of more like a you know requirement that FDA renew um, their finding that it sort of should stay on the market as opposed to uh, um, the uh, the affirmative step of actually withdrawing it. Uh, that seems to have a fairly uh, um, uh, uh, significant departure from sort of, kind of how things stand now, but sort of perhaps uh, um, something that would sort of kind of combine a um, withdrawal trigger once FDA makes a determination versus uh, um, you know, FDA having to make a, uh, um, you know, sort of a, uh, um, a lengthy uh, process like we have now, where sort of a company can, uh, um, you know, really sort of kind of uh, um, fight on every front to uh, um, keep the product on the market might uh, um, might be more satisfying and uh, might be sort of a middle road between those uh, um, those two approaches that sort of kind of uh, um, no no certainty that it would ever get withdrawn versus uh, um, you know uh, the plony requirement that uh, um, you know, a lot of effort be made just to keep it on the market. Yeah, it's interesting. You could also see, even if they went to dispute resolution and allowed, you know, you just started appealing up the chain. I mean, how many how many levels could you appeal to before you get to the commissioner? And then if you demand an advisory committee meeting too, and, you know, before you know it, it's 30 days times, you know, for a response times every, you know, how many ever levels of management you decide to go through, you know, I mean, you could, you could prolong it, you know, probably another, you know, nine months or something like that, or a year, 
just by going through the you know that process which is supposed to be quicker so well that's all for this week for more check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com you could also find this in previous podcast episodes on itunes google play TuneIn, soundcloud and spotify by searching for pharma intelligence and if you're so inclined feel free to give us a review Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sue Sutter, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.